0: The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference.
1: The crux of this gets to that help-seeking journey was incredibly difficult. I didn't know how to have conversations. I didn't know how to speak to my friends. I didn't know how to speak to services. The services for mental health on campus were above the Sport and Recreation Centre. I was at Sporting America to play sports. Every time I went there and went upstairs, I was so nervous about who was going to see me going up there or, or leaving there.
0: Hello. My name is Matt Accard. I am CEO and co-founder of Ethical Partners Fund Management. And welcome to the Good Investing podcast. Now I've got to say, it's not often you get to interview and speak with your hero. And uh, I'm doing that today. I met uh, our guest here, Sebastian Robinson. He's actually giggling. He shouldn't be. I thought this was the banter part. It's a good start. It's not the banter part. (laughs) You are actually my hero. You don't know it, but you're about to find out today. I met Sebastian in 2011 in what was really a chance meeting. Um, You see, we both went to St. Aloysius College back in the day, about 15 years apart, and I was at a North Sydney Leagues Club Mm. St. Aloysius reunion, and it was your typical affair. It was a pretty big one. It was about 500 people there across multiple years of um of old boy reunions at at St. Aloysius. And it was the usual kind of thing. There were speeches and yeah, it was it was fine. And then Sebastian got up to speak. And I just remember sitting in this big hall in the main hall there at North Sydney Leagues. And the whole room, after about thirty seconds of Sebastian speaking, went absolutely, absolutely quiet. You could literally hear a pin drop. I know it's a cliche, but this was the Pin drop, you could hear, and particularly given that for the twenty minutes before there was raucous laughter and carry on, and it's something that um, that I'll never forget. And um, I guess it interrupted all the normal boring stories of of, uh, of old days um, at school. Um, and Seb got up and spoke, and he told his story, and he's he's going to. Tell us a little bit more about that a little bit later on. I won't go into it now, but um, I walked away absolutely moved, and and then never really did anything about it, and almost disappointed in myself, saying I should have done something about it. But I did get a second chance And Macquarie. Macquarie Foundation um, supported um, newer not-for-profit startup organisations, and as part of that uh, Kickstarter grant. The Batir application and business plan came across and I put two and two together. So I, I thought of Seb, who was uh, recently had founded Batir and, um, the proposal that was in front of us and said, this is something pretty special. I've seen it in action and, um, got the grant and I became, I was fortunate enough to become involved and uh, be a mentor and then go onto the board of Batir, um, for for a period of time, and Batyr's all around storytelling, Seb told his story that night, and and that's why, Seb, and he's right in front of me. It's it's funny to say it, but that's why you are my hero. Not only did you give up a a stellar career at GE, but you actually gave up something a lot more than that, and and that was you gave up yourself, your own story, something very personal in order to help uh, thousands of young people out there. So, um, it's officially the longest introduction to any podcast ever, <laughs> okay. but uh, it's it was pretty special, and I think it's great context. So, welcome to the Good Investing Podcast. Thank you very much, and and great to be
1: on. And I wanted to interrupt about a thousand times as you as you were speaking because I have I have memories of our first introduction, and it was very different to what you portrayed <laughs> there, and it more came off the back of the grant, and and you. Absolutely forcing your way into mentoring me. Lisa George, who was running the foundation at the time, said you don't really have a choice. Matt's already (laughs) told me that he's mentoring you, and he gave um, you gave some very. What's the rating of this podcast? PG or let's just Uh, say he gave some very um, firm advice onto the conditions of the business plan at the time, which I found quite offensive (laughs) with a background in finance. But it was fair. It was warranted, um, and and it was. I think it was the the early starts of a, of a very flourishing and um, meaningful relationship, which has served many different roles for mentor to being on the board to advisor. Um, you know, I think I think it's the start of something amazing beyond just just Batir and those early days.
0: Look, I think the idea is incredible. The business plan was yeah. You know. <laughs> there was scope you gotta for to be improvement. optimistic you gotta there's, be scope for improvement so um, how's your week been we're sitting here on a Friday yeah it's been look a good good week in the in the scheme of things you know
1: back of the ashes coming off no sleep three kids uh, five and under uh, wasn't a great setup. Um, so I feel like I'm getting a bit of a rhythm back I had a, I had the man flu as well so that pretty much Not good. made me redo my you know estate planning and things like that just reassessing everything but um, other than that it's been Great, it's been a pretty positive week, and um, I'm actually
0: fortunate to go on a bit of a work trip um, on Sunday for a week. So I'm looking forward to that. Very good, very good. It's been an eventful week for me. I've actually got um, I actually got scammed this week. The great pillow scam, scam yeah. on your pillow, buying a pillow. Oh, I thought you were going to say it, your wife took it no. and you switched it over without <laughs> no, the you knowing. Pillow, the bra- great <laughs> pillow. What's a, a pillow scam? It's such buying? a it's, such a, uh, in, it's actually an impressive scam. So you go on to click onto this website, you buy a pillow. You buy extra items as bonuses. They actually send you more than what you ordered and you have no choice to change your quantities and orders. The order arrives, you got to do your free return. You've got to return it to Lithuania (laughs) in the condition and in the packaging that you received it. However, they send it to you shrink-wrapped. So unless you have a shrink-wrapping machine at home, You cannot actually send this stuff back to Lithuania, which would actually cost more than what you actually paid for it. And when you complain, you say, well, we sent it to you. We actually sent you more than what you want. We did send you the goods. It's actually a very, very clever scam. That's a great um, scam. Almost proud of being... That, I feel like maybe um,
1: maybe my wife fell for that because I go into our bedroom and I think I've got about 40 pillows on the bed. <laughs> and I just, every night, I've got to lift them all off. It's like a workout. That's why I don't need gym membership. I just move it to the
0: side, put it back well, on in the morning. I should, have, I should have actually Googled the great pillow scam because then it <laughs> came up and there's hundreds of people who have been really have it, done this. For this. Um, so, anyway, that's part of my week. The uh, other part is um, my electric toothbrush ran out of charge. Oh, so we've mate, had this conversation. We have before, had this conversation, the electric and, toothbrush. Um, um, Karen, my wife was telling me. Electric toothbrush for about 20 years, and I said, "No, no, no! Don't get an electric toothbrush. It can't be that good. I don't need another electric device. What's going on? Switched. Never looked back. She's absolutely right, as she always is." So now, when you don't get to use electric toothbrush and you have to go back to the manual way, you think, "How could I've done this for twenty five years?" Yeah. See, I you you introduced me to the electric toothbrush. I gave you electric toothbrush.
1: after a lunch because I was the only one at the table <laughs> for like six guys that wasn't using an electric toothbrush. Uh, I must admit, how's it going? Well, I use it more as like a a gift to myself. So when I feel like I've done something good, then I treat myself to the electric toothbrush. Otherwise, if I feel like it's been a you know subpar day, I just the the old school is kind of winning out of i just got to change the structure a little bit it's thoroughly enjoyable but the one thing i did two minutes is a long time it is a long time like that is a long time to brush in your the teeth. mornings yeah and you just i just don't know if i have those the the two discipline. minutes the discipline
0: to sit there i mean anyway i'm working on it i'm working what, on it. it's a work good. in progress excellent um no, and it's been enjoyable that's good and, and just finally um yesterday i had the privilege of going down to Melbourne to um, speak at the Property Industry um, Foundation um, with Batir, yeah, with Michelle brilliant, Blanchard, brilliant. Um, talking yeah. about mental health and um, its impact um, on homelessness for young people. Yeah. A terrific discussion. So it's been a, a diverse week, that's, that's for sure, and wrapping it up this week in talking to you. How good. Great way to round it out. All right. Hopefully, so. early days. I see. <laughs> Let's see what content you've got. Or <laughs> so, what I've got, I should no, say. You've got the I content. I've got yeah. nothing. Uh, so, so just for, for <laughs> listeners who have actually listened this long, uh, who have made it um, this far, well, what we're going to talk about today is the Sebastian Robinson story and his journey from school to university in Canberra to being one of the upcoming stars of GE, as I talked about before. And for those that don't know, Seb, he's one of the most charismatic and dynamic people you will ever meet, but like all of us, outward impressions can sometimes be deceiving. And we talk about some of the tough times, um, 10 to 15 years ago in particular, which led him to founding Batir, all the way through to Seb stepping down from the organisation he founded 12 years later, which is very, re- very recent. and is actually one of the driving forces of, of spending time together today. We talk about mental health in the workplace, um, recent work Batir has done and why this is such an important emerging area for Australian corporates. We then cover Seb's most recent venture, Birdie, um, which in a, a few short years is already working with some of Australia's largest corporates. So there's a lot there. I think it's a great discussion. Um, but I do want to give listeners a little bit about your background. I think that's pretty good. I think you've covered everything I've no, done. I think we've got a lot more than that. You could um, round it out. I'll give my one quote. Just, um, Just to... <laughs> Set the record straight. So, Seb is a recognised social entrepreneur and executive. That's a bit you wrote. Yeah, that's. Um, yeah. I wasn't going to actually say that, but um, <laughs> so so he is currently CEO and co-founder of and chief remote pilot of Birdie, an aerial mm-hmm. intelligence platform specialising in drone technology. And we're going to talk about that in a special section of the podcast. In 2013, though, he was Cleo Bachelor. <laughs> um, Cleo. I'm not going to let your laughter get over this uh, Cleo Bachelor of the Year, 2013. You no, was, say you
1: I came was, equal uh, fourth. I, yeah, that's correct.
0: We all know you were Cleo Bachelor of the Year 2013, um, and I'm sure you still have an edition of that magazine when it was actually operating. It'd be online now. But it was
1: it was such a high selling uh, um, publication yeah. that it ceased um, after, oh, that. I mean, it right after that. It was the last edition. So I'm still one of the last remaining CEO Cleo
0: Cleo Bachelors of the Year. So that was. Um, <laughs> Well done. Uh, also, apparently, in your younger days, had a surprisingly slow uptake of the English language, preferring your own special language, um, which none, I, of fam- none of the family understood. none of the family understood. this so, is what I gave you. No, it's not. So, here's the opportunity <laughs> yeah. now to give us an example of that. <laughs> no, okay. I'm very goal oriented, and in fact, I'm very persistent. And I know in your early years, you had a uh, a request from the family. Asking for a Mentos packet that never ran out, (laughs) and you've actually asked for this for five consecutive years. Still haven't got it. Probably the most surprising part was the five consecutive years between the ages of 15 and 20, which is also a little bit surprising, a little bit worrying. (laughs) Um, You love a biography but hate reading? That's true. I've got some biographies here. I love a biography. I just think- Love it. I love the real stories. I love the real stories. Real stories. Love it. Um, so, that's particularly interesting. You're interested in Aloysius College, as we talked about before. Many people don't know this about your Alavisius career, that you were sport captain of Subtle House, both in the senior school and the junior school. That's correct. I'm going to have to check the college record. Well, I, I, can, believe... I can
1: trump that. Ooh. I don't know if it's in there. I mm-hmm. was also the winning house captain, both junior school and secondary, and I don't think that's been beaten. And that's basically since then, career's been downhill. <laughs> that was the peak. That was record. the
0: peak. <laughs> well, that, that was the peak. <laughs> peak. So, um, but that <laughs> is admirable. It really is. God, you're going deep. How long, how long is this intro? Going deep. No, no, it's about to finish. We, um, then you graduated with a double degree well, after I was just a double degree in economics and commerce at ANU down in Canberra. Uh, Love doing the inward bound 100 kilometer plus challenges where they drop you somewhere blindfolded with a compass and a 200 mil bottle of water. No shoes, mm-hmm. just in just- limited clothing. <laughs> I made that last bit up, but it, they are big challenges, and you were very were good big. at them. They were big, great yeah. resilience, um, in, um, creativity, uh, problem solving, which um, which doesn't surprise me at all. And uh, I know a couple of times you nearly ended up in hospital. I, I, that. I did crutches
1: yeah. for a week after one of them, and it was I was picked in the top div because they thought I was the only one mentally that would try and keep up with the other three runners and that was the only reason. I think they went through 10 people before they got to me. so um,
0: I'm not yeah. surprised. Yeah. Um, Fun yeah. times there. Outside of um, formal education or, or more traditional um, secondary and university, you studied at the School for Social Entrepreneurs <laughs> and uh, also the Australian Institute of Company Directors. And as I said before, you worked at G in their financial management program. Um, you've also been a director of a number of startup and developing companies, including Octopi Waters, and continued to be so, um, I believe, and and uh, Nautilus Energy, both of which focus in the renewable energy space. So again, that entrepreneurial spirit coming through, um, and also campaign director for the Australian or for Australians for mental health in the two thousand and sixteen federal election. That's um, yeah. big and important role um, in many ways which does lead me to a question, and you can give a scoop here on the Good Investing Podcast, your political ambitions. I do believe you're looking to run for office. Is that—is that true? What's the comment? No comment? No, no comment. No <laughs>
1: comment. I, I, I think um, I've been given some advice from various mentors that uh, that – Think about where you can have the best impact, and I think I'm on a I think I'm on a good weekend at the
0: moment. So I'll okay. stick to stick to the status that's, quo on that one until that changes. Yeah, um, <laughs> but they'll be re-re- they'll be replaying this later. They might. That's so why I've got to be careful be of the podcast. careful um, of the language. Um, so that's no. that's where all um, that's where all the gold is. But um, okay, so that's interesting. And um, but like, as I said before, in all seriousness, the reason we are doing this in many ways is because um, Seb has. Um, stepped down from Batia recently as its founder and chair and CEO uh, over the years and built that organisation to where it is today. And for those that don't know Batia, it's a preventative mental health charity for young people. Um, stigma, under-resourced communities and other barriers to accessing quality information and services um, stop young people from getting the right help when they need it. Um, and the idea of preventative uh, preventative approach is hopefully get these young people before they suffer um, severely from their mental health issues. And looking at Batyr now up until today, most recent statistics is directly reached over 355,000 young Australians um, through evidence-based programs in Australia. Um, Essentially Batyr trains young people to to tell their own story of mental ill health to other young people. So it's a peer-to-peer model Research driven, and we know that young people are more likely to listen to other young people. Um, and if they can do that, we can break down stigma. They can get the help that they need. In a way, yesterday actually, the Beteer um, CEO Nick Brown said, "You know, Beteer is a connection between young people and all the services there to help young people." Because I think everyone agrees that if um, someone they know has a mental health issue, or they do, it's really hard to know where to go. You know, That's how, right. how do I approach yeah. it? Um, yeah. So. In 2016, um, Seb took on a more non-executive position at Beteer as he moved across to um, founding Birdie with his brother and others. Um, and as I said recently, um, stepped down um, from that chair role. So where this podcast fits into the broader good investing thematic is partly around mental health in the workplace, partly around leadership, succession planning, and also around how to manage a startup. There's not many people That have started up a charity and also a separate business, and I'm referring there to Birdie, the aerial intelligence company, which we're going to talk about um, at the end of the podcast. It's a very long introduction, Seb. Um, What I would love you to do now is is tell your story your own way. Um, From I don't know what you what have you missed out the good parts, I guess. (laughs) From I guess that time ten to fifteen years ago when um, you you had the, the world in front of you, you know, you had everything there. Um, but you left GE, you went to start Birdie, and I know that was a particularly tumultuous time. So I'd love you to just tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I guess for me, it's it's always hard recapping stories in turning points um, particularly when the topic is is mental health or, or mental illness in, in my instance and um, you know great family great education as you've referred to you know really really strong sense of community I was never the best but I was always average so I always kind of could do things and and have a crack and I love that. Um, part of life, and I had a great opportunity to study at ANU in Canberra, and that was a real turning point for my life, um, uh, which I thrived in. I I'd like to think, or in reflection, one of the um, key parts of that, though, that it, uh, in and hindsight's a wonderful thing. You know, it, it's much easier to reflect on your journey rather than be in it sometimes. But one of the things by moving to Canberra, I left my support network. And and I wanted to reestablish myself, and and I did that within means. I was very goal orientated. This inward bound that you were talking about, the hundred k runs. I was like, I hated running before that, and I was like, I'll fall in love with running. I'm like, why? Because if you run Div One, you kind of accept it. It was like the glory sport on on campus, but no one knew about it outside of camp. Um, you know, outside of A and U. But that's what I wanted to do. So I put my head down, did that, played all the sports. But but I isolated myself, and and I referred to and we'll talk about this in more detail. But obviously. Whilst I was going through these leadership roles and I ended up in my third year on campus, I uh, became president of, of the college, one of the colleges there, which was, uh, for lack of better descriptions, was the Jocks College um, of the time. Uh, and, and with that came a lot of expectations, both self and, and community. And I think I tried to ride those expectations myself more than anything else. So I was living this external life and whilst I was going on, I was dealing with deep depression that I just never spoke about. And I had, um, you know, I I speak more honestly at different times, but, you know, suicide attempts during there, but no one knew, nobody knew. Like family didn't know, friends didn't know. This was the most grueling individual's journey um, of living two lives at, at once, and and was it was that was
0: that depression there at school, or did it really manifest no, think- itself? When you went yeah to i think canberra. It, was, it
1: was really in canberra it was really in canberra and it was also it was a hard one i didn't recognize it i didn't recognize that i had it, it was always mental illness was always for someone else not like me not in my roles not in my positions it was always someone else's that the, the mental health services were never for seb robertson they were for other people who were you know needed that additional support and so there was that stigma that just distance that maybe, just maybe that might be something that I need to deal with. Now, I think now we've come a long time since then. So you've got to go back a, a fair bit here in, in the context of it. Um, and I didn't recognize this wasn't, I, I ended up having what I call my my trigger night and, and trigger night to seeking help. So, um, and maybe I'm going a bit too much into it, but uh, I ended up, there was an incident on campus. It was in the evening. Everyone, it was after an event, everyone's drinking um, and there was a big event and, and a friend ended up getting taken to hospital. And and while she was being taken to hospital, the, just because it was on campus, the police are also called. They knew security and there's probably, you know, a good few hundred people standing around looking at this event. Everyone's had a few drinks, as you can imagine. Mm. And the doors to the ambulance shut and drove off. And, and I knew all I needed to do there was get in the cab and, and go um, meet the friend at the hospital. For whatever reason, I just lost it emotionally, physically, I just couldn't control myself um, and and I just had to take it out and I didn't know how or what and whatever. And, and that kind of culminated in essentially nearly six police officers tackling me as an individual to the ground, lifting me up, bawling my eyes out, putting me back in the police fat, um, wagon and being taken to Canberra um, holding station. And that was a real moment It wasn't that moment surprising. that was an embarrassing moment. don't get me wrong. Um, but the the light bulb moment was the next morning. everybody knew I was there. trust me, everybody knew I was there. And there was a lot happening that I didn't know about at that time, obviously. But when I left there for whatever reason, the police let me out but didn't tell anyone I was going to be let out. And so when I came out, no one was there. And so I had this 20 minute walk, 15 minute walk back to the college campus where I lived, this humiliating walk of like, in my hour of need, where is everyone? Mm. Like why is no one here? And I look at my journey. I always try to be there for other people. Like I get a real kick out of helping other people. I think we're more designed to help other people than we are to help ourselves. Like we're better at that. Uh, And I just was like, why is this the case? And and in that moment, I was like, they're not here because I haven't asked for help. I haven't recognized that I needed help. And so that was a real turning point for me on a help seeking journey. And and the the crux of this gets to that help seeking journey was incredibly difficult. I didn't know how to have conversations. I didn't know how to speak to my friends. I didn't know how to speak to services. The services for mental health on campus were above the Sport and Recreation Centre. I was at Sport and Rec to play sports. So every time I went there and went upstairs, I was so nervous about who was going to see me going up there or, or leaving there that it just could never really provide it was never. That. It was never talked about. And it wasn't talked about. Ever. It just wasn't. Um, and, and and so I went through this journey of help-seeking almost somewhat alone on the help-seeking journey. And then I got through and and I was very fortunate I got this um, uh, leadership award at the end of the year and I got given like six grand cash, which is like huge, you know, back, you know. Oh, maybe it was three grand. Maybe I've inflated it over time, but it was probably three grand. It was probably- It was probably 300 bucks. Yes, it's worth, six grand, now. Yeah, it's worth <laughs> six grand now, maybe. Um, but anyway, and so I treated myself and, and my best mate, um, Dame at the time, and I went over to South Africa and it was a real turning point for me in my, my life on it. But I just- um, looked back and I said, ah, all I wanted to do was hide that story. I didn't want people to know about it. I didn't want to be judged on it. I just wanted it in the shadows and I wanted to be judged by my peers, um, however they were going. But, but the best analogy I can think of, it was like, I was running a hurdles race and I feel like I was hitting every hurdle because that's just my style and everyone else is running a clean hundred meter race. And, and I know they've got their own race and it's not about comparisons, but in life you do individually compete, compare a lot. And that was really tough to, to realize. And then I kind of, um, you know, graduated with, as you said, double degree commerce economics in the middle of the GFC. And I was like, get me out of institutions. I need so to so after the community.
0: incident kind of yeah. when the ambulance was there, that you, you trigger night, how many years after that did you graduate? So that was, uh, nearly two years, two years. So yeah. what was the period like between that, that night and the, two years after how, how did you get through that? that had you told many people
1: no like no no I'll, I'll tell one story and, and I hope my dad doesn't mind me telling this story but um you know I I felt telling my story and I slowly told certain friends different stories and there was a really good network of support and when I opened up they were brilliant brilliant everyone was kind of there and, and lent in and family were really good and um my sisters and brother were brilliant right but i I felt like my story was too much to burden for everyone. So I'd only tell snippets of it. But when I was telling my story, it's it's almost cathartic in therapy in and of itself. Um, but I'd forgotten just because, I don't know, I just memory, I couldn't remember who I told what. And so then I had this like blurred memory of, I don't know if I've told everyone or not told everyone and anyone. And then, and I guess the, the story that I want to tell is, I remember um, getting to the point of being like, I'm going to start Batir. And I was like, right, I need to get some press. I need to tell my story to the press. So I'm like, oh, I'll put my story in the Sydney Morning Herald. Like this was not, this was, um, there was a lot of advice against this, which maybe at the time was probably sound advice, but I ignored it Um, anyway. And I think it was at that time my dad ended up calling me, being like, like, I've just read your story in the Sydney Morning Herald. And I hadn't told him everything. I just hadn't had that conversation with him, um, and I think that for me was a reflection of we still get caught up in our own journey, and even that relationship, which is really important to me, and, and I get along really well with my father. It was a difficult thing that I didn't realise, and I think that um, was tough for him to read. Like imagine reading the story of your own son um, in that in that scenario, wondering
0: and why he wasn't able, to why he went us, and, and so you, that-
1: naturally in that situation you always wonder. And I'm sure the the audience here is more the the kind of parenting age, you go, would would your child open up to you? And I, and I'm just, I just, the hard truth is we open up to our peers before we open up to anyone else. That is just on most things, whether it's at work, you chat to a peer in work, whether it's, you know, you're just more like if you're playing cricket, you chat to your, your cricket mate. Like you just default a lot more to teammates and statistics will will support that. And, and there's a lot of research behind it, but um, that's what you do. And so the conversation with the parents is one of the hardest because I didn't have a reason as to why I was going through this.
0: It was well. That's the thing. If you think, why should I be feeling this way, right?
1: Yeah, and 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 I don't think they'd done anything wrong. I think I'd had a great life, and 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 I have no complaints. I think it's brilliant. I'd I'd love to replicate my my childhood. It's got its challenges, don't get me wrong. But you know, I think as a whole, it was it was great. So that would that was just. In coming back to that two years, it it did become a bit of a blur and became a bit for me of like, I've got to get through this. And meanwhile, I'm still trying to study econometrics and, um, you know, do financial modeling on the side. Um, But I did, I I look, I, I joke a bit, but I loved my time at university. I loved now reflecting that that challenge and that experience and that experience of mental ill health has made me who I am today. And it's really a part of my story and it's part of who I am. And I think it has created more opportunities than it did challenges. But when you're in that hole, when you're in that dark spot, I honestly just felt life would be easier and everyone else would be better off if I wasn't here. And that's a hard thing to go where I am now to back then, it's really hard to kind of um, see just the, 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 the gap between those two periods in life.
0: What can parents do to give themselves the best opportunity to be able to have that conversation, do you think?
1: Yeah, look, I I think now that I've got kids myself, I I think about this um, a bit. The the first thing you can do, and, and this is general advice, is shine the spotlight on you before you shine it on anyone else. And that includes your kids. So what are you doing to address your own mental health on an ongoing weekly, daily basis? And how open are you about it that that's why you're doing it? So if you're going to the gym, yes, there's a physical benefit, but I know that mentally it puts me in a good headspace, or, or whatever it might be. And you need time out to read or, or escape and, and actually have a holiday from work. Th- those things matter more than just the holiday, it's the intent. And so when it becomes part of your vocab, it's easier for the child to bring that vocab up. It's also a journey that you've got to walk with the child, not in front of the child. So um, the language now has changed since I started Beteer. The knowledge and the support structures are different to when I started Beteer, and that's in 10 years. So uh, no matter, like my kids in, in 15, 10 years time, whatever it might be, if they face issues is I know that I've got to start from scratch. So I've got to, you know, get yourself on, um, honestly, there's the standard mental health organizations, just get on the distribution list because you do learn by reading and, mm-hmm. and you get the odd email of what's happening in the sector and you can learn from that. And that's a great way to kind of stay on top of the topic mm-hmm. with it. Uh, but it is a, um, difficult one. And I'd say the other comment I'd make don't self critique your own parenting first. Don't make it about you. Make it about how you can best support your child. Do that reflection on your own with your with your friends and family, whatever it is. But don't do it with the child. Don't make it about you. And that's hard to do sometimes. Because yeah,
0: but that's that'd be that's, general advice. That's that's great advice. I'm I'm sure people will learn a lot from that. Given your background, what you've done, uh, where you've been, so that's that is really useful. Why not? Join another charity that's already established, or stay in the private sector and do non-exec stuff. Why kind of leave GE and start up from scratch? I'd love to yeah. understand your thinking so, around that time.
1: I think the context is I had no intent to start an organisation. That was never the that was never the agenda. Um, I actually pitched Batir the concept of Batir. Let's train young people. With their own lived experience, to share that with other young people, and then we won't provide the service. We'll promote services, and I was sort of it like marketing. It's easier for me to promote. Bad example. Um, it's for, I was going to say promote Coca Cola as a mate and give you a Coke, than it is for Coca Cola to come and try and sell it to you. So I was like, just just buying behaviours. It's easier um, to do it um, behind the scenes in, in a trusted network, and and so I pitched the concept of Beteer, not the name, but the concept of Beteer to four for, um, very well-established, I won't use names, very well-established organizations. And the general commentary was it, it essentially won't work. Lived experience was not a part of the sector that it is now. You'll barely mention the mental health sector without lived experience being embedded in that conversation. This was not part of it back then. Um, there was a concept of you want to train people to share their story and then publicly speak. We have a greater fear of public speaking than we do of our own death. So you're like, come on. And then by the way, you also want that person to tell their personal story of mental ill health. You're like, it's not a great, like it's not a great combination. Um, even now it's still not an <laughs> ideal combination. Uh, but I think underlying to me, I always looked at my story and I said, I just wish I heard from a Seb Robertson, not a profiled person, just someone who was a few years out of school, who had just walked in my shoes, talk about what it's like to seek help. How do you speak to your parents? How do you? How, what is it? What does a counselling office even look like? Um, and I just felt that if you could take a story of of what I would call shame, in many ways, as we. I saw it originally like, don't let me affiliate with that story and turn that into a tool that can help other people Everyone will want to do that. If you can take your story, your experiences, and that might help somebody else, you're going to do that. You almost sacrifice yourself in the hope that it might help someone else not have that same experience. And that was the driving force, and I think it is to this day. And and I think now we've had nearly 1,200 young people trained, and this isn't just like this is a two-day training program, different structures where they're learning to share their story with each other in groups of seven. So it's a lot of programs to get to that scale. All those young people, all those speakers want to do it for the exact same reason. They want to help someone else out. And I think we underestimate the power of young people willing to drive positive change. And I think that's all we did at the time. And, and everyone got behind it and said, let's just give this a crack. Like the mental health sector is is challenging. Like I can give you a, a very interesting stat of like, is stigma still an issue today? Everyone will say it's it's changed from in, in the decades and decades for sure. Do not doubt that. But um a recent study in 2022 highlighted that I think the numbers 30 or 34 percent of Australians would not want to live next door to somebody with depression yeah well wow. that is still that's your next door neighbor like statistically one in two Australians have Depression. If you look either side of your house, one of them probably has had depression or someone in your house has. But statistically, over a third of us don't want to live next door to that person. It's
0: just, it's still it has changed absolutely, but we've still got a long way to go. Yeah. And and some of the other changes you think in the mental health sector overall. So lived experience most definitely now has yeah, been recognized. <laughs> I mean, do you think the sector's too fragmented? Does it need reform? How do, how, how do we – because the incidence of mental health, particularly in young people, it's not declining. No, um, no, no. Yes, it's, there's it's, been yeah. a lot of organisations that have grown and do terrific work. Hmm. So where does the sector go from here and how's it changed? Yeah, I've had a lot of time to reflect on
1: this about uh, – because I, uh, I think my work and effort in the mental health sector is not done. I'm just not sure what it will look like moving forward. Uh, with it. So I'm trying to work that out a bit myself on a more systemic level of what what do I think could change or should change. It is fragmented, but it's fragmented in different segments. So I always try to break the sector up into three components. So there's the research, there's the service delivery, and then there's prevention. And at the moment, um, we fund, uh, and this is bad analogy, but we fund the hospital model of the like, we'll come in after care, um, you know. Post suicide care and support, um, and and that's because that is the most obvious place that you can fund. Um, what we don't do is we don't fund upstream. We don't fund prevention. It's 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 a secondary comment. On big announcements. It's a tack on. And then what also I've recognised is there are too many organisations trying to do all three. There's too many organisations trying to be the best at everything. And they're basically trying to put their hand wherever the funding is. That's what drives it. Uh, and I think that's a, I think that structure doesn't work. I think we need to be better at outlining as an organisations and organisations within it, what we do and what we don't do. And what you don't do is just as important because then you need to work on how you better partner with the system to provide a clean journey for those with lived experience. So I think I think there's a lot to do. Um, Ironically, I would say there are too many organizations that mirror work. Um, And part of that is part of that is caused by the way the sector is funded. We philanthropy plays a huge role in this space, um, particularly in early innovation programs and surprisingly a lot in prevention, simply because it's underfunded. And so Philanthropy is amazing, but there's not a clear journey to taking philanthropy and a successful program and working out how to scale. It's really great. So most of the organizations you would come across in the mental health sector are tiny, they're small. And people go, well, we should merge. And go, you'll save on overheads. I'm telling you now, there are no overheads to save on. There's, they're just not spending, they're on an oily rag. And so that doesn't work. So there's gotta be a carrot that better aligns the story in that prevention space. But I also think, and I think this came out more more recently um, in in some government um, reports that have been in the front page of the paper. Decisions of funding are still being made by the politicians as opposed to essentially by departments in the sector as a whole. And so – individual voices have a lot of weight within this sector. And that's great, they've done amazing things off the board and I'm not saying they haven't been advocating for the right things, but I think we have to make sure that other voices can get to the table and that the distribution of funding is appropriate to where we think we're gonna get the best return on investment. And I think that applies in the philanthropic level as it does to the to the government um, large scale programs level. I think there's a desire to do that. I think the question is how do you make that happen?
0: Okay. Talk to us about succession planning. It's not easy to step down from an organisation you founded, you were CEO, you were chair, mm. and you've now stepped down. Ellen Derrick has taken on the chair. So lucky to have yeah, incredible, incredible like her yeah, to incredible lead, the, lead the ship now. Mm. How do you manage that process? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll break this into three quick stages. So the first stage i talk about is there was
1: um, underlying, and you you you're around for these days, of there's a real risk that the story of Bittier became my story, that people wanted Sebastian Robertson to come and share their story at a school program. They didn't want any random story. They wanted a controlled story, controlled narrative. And and I had to make it very clear that when I come and speak, you're not getting Sebastian Robertson, you're getting Batir, You're getting a Batir program. And so there was a real conscious effort from the day one is how do I start to say, this isn't about the Seb Robertson story. This is about the scaffold of all young people's stories, of anyone's story, of Joe, of Sarah, of Jane, whatever it might be. We all have a story. Batir is the platform that can Craft those stories and help tell that narrative in a really safe way that's safe for the students that are listening. That's safe for the speakers. And it fits within the structure of the environment that we're speaking at, whether that's schools, universities or, or, or workplace. That trans, that transition was probably harder than most people might take for granted that I had to intentionally stop speaking publicly. I had to knock back paid gigs because they're like, no, we only want Seb. And I was like, well, I'm not available. Um, I was, but I was like, I need to be quite intentional about it. So that was quite a good, that was a really interesting thing about, you got to back the program, you got to back the scaffold, you got to back the kind of idea. That was the first one. The second one was really, how does the founder step back as CEO? You always hear about founder syndrome and, and one of the biggest barriers is that. And when you start getting momentum, particularly in social entrepreneurship, you start to get acknowledged. You start to get kind of more recognised and, and it becomes easier. And so I stepped down probably pretty early on in, in the journey. I think we'd done the heavy lifting, but it was very clear we strategically as a board, and you were on the board at the time, had a succession plan in place that the person that I'm about to speak about didn't know about, um, which was um, Sam Refshorge. He was General Manager of AIM, the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience uh, founded by Jack Manning Bancroft. And that organisation I think has been incredible um, the structure, the model has been brilliant. We mirrored that almost identically, just applied it in the mental health space. And so Sam came onto the board and Abe and I in particular knew my brother, who I co-founded basically every business you've referenced. He essentially founded, I just get stuck with the implementation. Um, but uh, in that with with Sam, we didn't tell him this was a journey because we knew the organization wasn't ready for it. So we knew we had to get the organization up to a certain turnover, to a certain number of staff, to a certain kind of point that he could see a role for him to come in and take over. Um, and and I think we actually did that brilliantly, but that was a two-year journey um, to do that. And and I think he did a phenomenal job. I think taking over the role of a founder is one of the hardest jobs ever ever. Uh, particularly in a growing organization, and, and I take my hat off to him for one, putting his hand up to do it, uh, and two, doing it with such um, uh, just such graciousness and drive that saw that organization go from strength to strength. And then, and then I fell into no man's land, uh, and I didn't know what to do. And so then I transitioned to the the board, which brings me to my third one, which is. Um, I, I think I, I think I kicked you out of the chair role. You I think did. you were chair, you and did. I was like, Played I had an
0: interim uh, role there. I, I think I was last person standing at that point in time. So I did it grac- graciously and adequately. Yeah, I think, I,
1: I think you were like, Seb, you need to do something here. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, he's like, I'm going to step down. Why don't you take chair? You were very good about it. I must admit, you were very good. And and I think that that was actually really important for me that that role. Um, it it felt that I could be supporting and help drive the direction and ensure the longevity of it, but without being the one to execute. And then obviously a question comes at one point, do you hand over as chair? And and uh, I think the um we began that hunt for a long time. It was very intentional about who we were looking for, what type of person we were looking for. And and I think we were um, so fortunate to find it in Ellen, just in in Every box we needed to tick around just that um, humility, the leadership capabilities, the understanding of organizations and people, but also that um, context of lived experience and appreciating the story of it. And also the chair role is different to the CEO role. It's not about her coming in and leading, it's about her coming in and backing the team to do a great job. And, and, and so Ellen Derrick's the managing um, partner of Deloitte Consulting and she's just been incredible. I know it's still early days, uh, but it's been great to see how her and Nick, the CEO are already interacting and, um, and the feedback from Nick's been, been brilliant. So that's been um, amazing. It's been really good to, to do that. And, and I think succession planning is a core part of a lot of organisations. And I think when you're the founder, there's a bigger burden on that succession planning. And so um, you have to be very intentional about it. Otherwise, it's easy to kick the can down the road. So you, you kind of have to force the hand to some degree of the board to make a decision to make some calls about this and 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 move it forward because it is um, – it it the role when you're founder and chair takes up a lot of time, headspace, capacity, and when you're in mental health, my inbox email, whether it's Birdie, my Bateria email, my Facebook email, my Instagram, my LinkedIn now, I still get hit up, you know, I'd almost say nearly multiple times a day with
0: individual stories of guidance or support or direction. And that's a big. That's a big burden. It's a huge, a burden. big human burden. Um, I mean, you take away. There's lots to take away from that, but I think any organisation, succession planning is is critical. Not-for-profit organisation. They, uh, you know, a lot of corporates will be listening to this. And the one takeaway for me is around planning, and time, and looking ahead. Because I think if you don't look ahead a number of years, then you know choices the choices don't become choices; they become things that you have to do quickly for whatever reason. They can be personal reasons, that's right. or, that's or right. just a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. So then you don't have the time to plan, and that's when decisions get hard and difficult, and perhaps outcomes aren't ideal. So I think if you're looking that far ahead, and actually reminded me, it was actually a good reminder of of Sam Refshauge's time because that was that was actually the beginning of you stepping down as founder yes that was what six years ago yeah six Six seven so there's a there's a six or seven year uh, pathway there to the current day and i think that's a different way of thinking about succession planning rather than just one year ahead or six months ahead and there's a lot of pieces that had to fall into place and i think the other takeaway for me is that and sometimes it's not appropriate, but I think in this case absolutely was a gradual move away makes a lot of sense. Yes, so there's a yes, there's a does. gradual change, which I think mitigates risk in the organization to it some does. degree. And look, I think my role my role shifts now. Like I think I can I can play
1: my role for the organization and the team and 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 the space uh, without being the role of chair. And so I think for the organization to go to the next level, I actually think it needed someone like Ellen to come in and, and provide that. more level-headed – not that I'm not level-headed, but (laughs) –
0: Well, I think it's just a different perspective. It's just a different perspective. It's fresh
1: fresh energy. It's fresh vision. It's fresh kind of perspectives on what's happening. And I think it's People in between
0: will do different things today with um, Ellen as chair than they would have done if you you were chair. And they they, won't even necessarily know know
1: that. You know now I know they give her – Pre- like prep notes before she goes to a meeting of like this is who's in the meeting, this is some stats on what Beteer is. I never got never a prep got note. That. It was just. Never got that. I didn't get that treatment. That's what but, I, you But there'll
0: be a whole lot of changes that <laughs> I don't think people will ever even know yeah. that will occur just because right. there's two people that are different and I think that's a good thing. I think it's great. It a great thing. Yeah. Um, so top five Beteer moments. This is your chance. My chance. Top five. I mean, there's, that's hard. It's a hard one. It's
1: a it's a really hard one. So, I I I've, I've want to break this into can I still six, but I'm going to divide it three and three. So oh, three is yeah, a pinch, sure. three's three's decent stories. So do you want the stories first, or do you want the the? Oh look, it's up to you. Whatever you think. All right, let me do. I, I have like three pinch me moments, which were like, oh wow, like I can't believe this just happened, and they were, they're, they're very personal to me, but they were really absolute turning points for the organization, and I'm I'm going to do it almost in, in chronological order. So, um, the first, the first was, uh, the Kickstarter grant from Macquarie. We, we, we were At the time, people don't like... There's context of how Batir started, but I basically had a bit of shares and a car, sold it. I moved back to Sydney because that was where my network was. I lived with my brother who subsidized my rent with my mate who also helped subsidize my rent because they didn't want me living at home. You know, people gave... In the background, but one of the first pinch me moments, and I've got a one with my mate who gave two grand. It's like privately just said, "Here, run with it." But Johnny doesn't get a mention on this one. So the pinch me moment was Macquarie, um, and Lisa George was running the foundation, and you were involved. I think you were on the foundation board at the time, or you were, you were maybe you're involved yeah. mm-hmm. in it. And, and it was just um, it was the first time a corporate came in and said, "We'll back you." we'll back you because we think this is a needed area and we think we're going to, you know, get behind you as an individual. And that was the first like, oh, wow. Now that grant, I think it was, was it 10? It was five. Five grand. Oh, God. Um, I still think the five grand probably made up what, 30, 40% of probably the turnover. It was about 50%. 50% of the turnover at the time. So it was a pretty weighty, um, (laughs) high-risk move um, in many ways. But it was a real pinching moment of like, okay, this now has legs. Like Macquarie lending us their name, which was really more what it was about, was – the professionalization of the organization. So that's, that's one. Um, the second one was um, Chris Cuff, um, who's turned into an, another incredible mentor of mine who, and, and he got third link in behind it. And I did this, this, sp- talk at um, the Orpheum Theatre in Mossman and I was sitting in between Greta Colleen and Ray Martin. So you got, li- this is your life on one side and you got the big brother, which I always wanted to go on, but never got selected on the other. And I'm like, oh, this is like a dream pinch me moment. Um, and then I went up and and uh, Lisa Cotton was like, you got to meet this guy, Chris. Chris comes up, um, you know, says, I might be able to help you out. And I've got this going straight over my head as to who the context of Chris is. And then I, he gives me his card. He's like, oh, just send me an email and, uh, and we'll try and work something out. And so I walk out and I show my my stepfather, Alan, and he goes, Chris Cuff is in like the Chris Cuff. And I'm like, oh, when someone says that, you know you got to Google it. you got to look up. And I'm like, oh, my God, Chris. I'm like, oh, my God, how do I email him? And so that formed an incredible relationship with, with him and Third Link in particular. But I laugh a little bit about it. I got him to speak. We, we, I don't know if you remember, we hosted a lunch at Macquarie. It was a dinner at Macquarie yeah. um, upstairs, and we said, hey, Chris, will you will you speak at it for us? Like you'll add some weight to the room. And he gets up, and I'm like, obviously talk about why you support Batir. That's kind of what it's about. And he gets up and he starts to talk basically going – I got this external person to run a review on, on Batir and if they should be funded. And the general consensus was this should not be funded as an organization. And I was like, and I'm just is, sitting there in the room. And don't, I'm, don't, don't go there. Don't go there was the advice. And I'm just sitting there being like, Chris, this is not what we discussed. This is, <laughs> this is not how we get more funding. Um, but he, he was brilliant. He goes, sometimes you just got to, you got to back the player and, 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 and the space and everything they had told or recommended we should have done by the time they wrote that report, we'd already done. So we, he kind of, I think, saw that as a as a journey, and that's been nearly eleven years, twelve years. We've been in partnership with them, and I think that's real credit to them sticking with us and, and moving forward. So that was the that was the second, and the third was um, Dr. Happy mm-hmm. Tim Sharp, a, a random contact, put a post up on LinkedIn saying, or um, well, Tim put a post up saying, "Does anyone have a charity that that I that I could get behind and support?" And someone randomly. Um, tagged Batir. And so we started this conversation. Tim Sharp's like, no, he's Dr. Happy. He's very well-known in the sector, very well-respected individual. And that was just, uh, I sat down and had a chat to him and he's like, yeah, I'm all in. And he just, he, he's in a role now of chief happiness officer for Batir. He sat on the board for a few years um, and he'll open, he won't mind saying he didn't love the board. He, he felt it was too away from the ground and where the work was. So he stepped down from the board and created this. We created he's been this. Been so incredibly generous and he's he so generous with his time. He still runs, I think it's monthly or fortnightly sessions with the team on well being and and what's happening. He mentors a whole heap of them. He still funds financially the team. very generous. Financially yeah. very generous. The guy is just one of the most giving persons. So there's my three pinch me, pinch me moments. And I'm conscious of time um, on this. So maybe I'll go and what are the three? I'm going to go with two. I'll go two. So I'll make it five. I'll we'll go yeah. back
0: to my five. Yeah, so yeah. I'll go back
1: to five. Just a bit of respect for the podcast. You know, <laughs> that's the so the first one is I want to talk about how amazing it's been to be connected to the country, um, country towns of Australia. So two in particular stand out for me. One is Cobar, uh Cobar, far west New South Wales. Um we we started running programs there, oh, it would have been in the first year or so. On it, I think we've been there almost every year since. With him, we said we're going to be here for the long term. But that relationship for a town that has just been rocked by challenge after challenge after challenge, the resiliency of those people out there just is. uh it's you, you would you would love a bit of it here in Sydney. They are just incredible people, grounded. They want to get behind the generations you know, farmers who have never spoken about this. We did a town hall, the first town hall, at the lawn bowls. They were like, the worst thing you can have in a country event is if it's a well publicized event. And if it rains, they're the two things you don't want. Basically no one turns up, right? Cause they just assume everyone else is going to go and no one wants to get out of the rain to go. And I was like, oh no, this is too, there's too much advertising. It was in the local paper. It was everywhere. You, I turned up in the town. It was everywhere. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. And then I was like, wait, I've been advised. That's horrible. And then it rained. And I was like, oh man, we're going to get like three people <laughs> at this thing. And, and at the Bolo, it was packed, absolutely packed and there was generations just in that room and every single one of them said, we have to change the dialogue on mental health in this community. And and I think they've done an incredible job. Of that, and I think we've been on that journey with them because they they welcomed us in. So that that's that country connection to Koba has being brilliant. We've got a few more than that now, but the other one I wanted to mention was Tamworth. Tamworth Ball. Um, it came off the back of a real tragedy with a guy called Scotty Campbell who um, who, who um, lost his life to suicide, and he he um, his wife Trina reached out and said, um, "Want to get behind Batia. And there's a real story of various connections, and we we hosted the first. They did a Um, a Tamworth ball, a white elephant ball up in Tamworth. And oh my God, it was just classic country. It was just so good. So they couldn't get the liquor license to for the ball. So they're like, all right, well, what do we do? We're like, we're going to do it anyway. So they said it's BYO now. I have never been to an event where there's been more grog. Everyone turns up with an esky. Every table had probably eight, nine eskies, and there's only 10 people sitting at the table. I went back the next day. The It was an inner gymnasium of one of the local schools. It looked like a swimming pool, like all the ice had just melted. But I remember speaking at that event, and that was probably one of the hardest Uh, speeches I've ever had to give. I was outside before the event, dry reaching, because I was just so nervous about getting up to this crowd who just lost one of their closest mates to suicide. And I'm going to talk about my story of survival. And I just didn't know how it was going to be received. And uh, it just, it really took a lot for me to do that, but I knew I needed to do it that community. I wanted to do it for Scotty, for Trina, for all those people that got behind it. And off the back of that, I think we raised about 40, 50 grand that night. And off the back of that, we got um, Emily Herbert involved as the first kind of rural part-time role and she was just phenomenal. She's an absolutely incredible person and drove us and just embedded, um, embedded us into that community. I think that, that, that really was a, a highlight for me. And the final one is the, the logo, the Batir logo. Uh, a bit of an unusual one because it was a mate's mum who was just doing some design course randomly. I was like, and she's an artist, but she paints vases and like much more nature. I said, can you design me a logo? So we ha- I have this back and forth with her. And anyway, so we get the logo, which is still give or take exactly what it is today. But there's one event which you, I'm sure you'll remember is I ended up on my farewell as CEO getting the logo tattooed onto my, um, uh, my backside uh, without telling anyone about that this was going on. And then at the farewell event that evening, which was a surprise farewell event that I didn't know about, I was also then able to give everyone a surprise, including my mum and um, Yvonne who designed the logo. A big surprise who both of them don't like tattoos, I'd say. I think that's a fair, safe statement. Um, but it, it serves a big part of my life and I love that it uh, will be part of me for forever.
0: Fantastic moments, fantastic moments. I had a few written down, but in the interest of time, I won't go through them. The one I will talk about, though, as an overall observation, it's not a moment, it's a series of moments, is... Is the people of the organisation, the enthusiasm, the energy, and the optimism within the Batir team? Mm. I think I'm going to get this number wrong, but there's I think there's like 50 full-time employees and another 100 volunteers. It's it's around that yeah. that number um, is it, quite incredible. Um, that that's that's the that's the the one that I'd draw I draw out.
1: I can add to that because I got this stat because I was hunting for information for. um personal reasons, but we've basically employed over 350 people since inception through the organization. And I think there's the core team there that are doing amazing things, but to see where all these people have gone on to do and contribute in various roles, whether globally or in Australia in different spaces, it's just been absolutely, uh, you know, incredibly humbling to watch them and, and what they've gone on to do and what they continue to do at team So yeah,
0: completely agree. Terrific. I'm going to skip now to mental health in the workplace. Yeah. A uh, really, right. really important, important topic. And I think a lot of the listeners of this being CEOs, um, fund managers, people in the financial services industries, other business leaders, you know, company directors and so on, I think we're very interested in, in talking, or me talking to you about this. And certainly our view, Ethical Partners, is that companies that we invest in and companies in the market have a fundamental responsibility for the health of their employees. Now, that might sound like a, an obvious statement, but traditionally it's always been focused on physical health, which is obviously critical, important, and safety. But we think that there needs to be a focus um, equally on mental health. And we look at this in our process, we call it the APORA, the Ethical Partners Opportunity and Risk Assessments, part of the human rights part of that process. We look at that really, really closely. And we also actively engage with companies. We see this as a way of utilising and being a steward of the capital that people give us to invest in engaging with companies and looking at this particular issue, asking them about it and trying to encourage better outcomes. We obviously had the COVID period, so we talked a lot around companies supporting their employees from a mental health perspective during COVID. We've also talked to multiple companies around elevating psychological safety to board level mm. and given the same resourcing as physical safety. We've also focused on areas such as sexual harassment, bullying and racism, particularly in some of the mining companies as well, publicised cases of that and independent reports as well yeah. and worked with UNICEF on a major report around the health of young people, uh, children and youth in particular. Um, part of that is, is a mental health focus as well. Um, we're, the, we're a founding signatory to the Global Investor Statement on Workplace Mental Health. Robin Parker, our head of sustainability, does some wonderful work um, in that group and across the board from a, um, a sustainability perspective. We commissioned Batir uh, late last year to write a report called "Promoting Mental Health and Wellbeing in the Workplace," and that sets out to better understand the role that work plays in. Um, the mental health and well-being of employees with a particular focus on young people. And I'll provide a link to that report, that excellent report um, in the podcast notes. Um, Seb, one of the things that the report unsurprisingly confirmed was that, um, and this is similar to research from the Australian Human Rights Commission, that mental health um, issues are an increasing driver of absenteeism uh, from work and impacts productivity significantly. This is getting worse. What do you think are some of the drivers that are that are kind of pushing that in this direction um, from uh, you know, from a mental health perspective?
1: Uh, it's, uh, I don't think there's one, I don't, from my observation and, and, and context, I'm not a researcher, so this is more anecdotal from my experience and, and observations. Uh, I don't think there's one, there's one factor at play, but I, I think this generally applies to the majority of people coming into the workforce is people are looking more at what does a balanced life mean and, and, and how does that play out? Um, I've always struggled with that concept, but I think people are trying to hunt it more and more on a daily, daily basis. And so I think our ability to raise that something's wrong has gotten a lot easier. I think our ability to find a solution and whose responsibility is to find that solution has gotten grayer. And so I think there's an element of in the workforce, you're often at the forefront of that. You either get told too late and you don't have a thing and, and so it absolutely hits you on the, on the absenteeism front, or there's dynamic issues and, and you're early and you're on that journey. So I, I don't know what the driving factor is, but I think statistically, we just know this is such a prevalent issue in society that it's it's um, something that we probably just didn't speak about before, but we're still underlying probably one of the drivers of absenteeism within the workplace. There's a lot you can do though to address it. And I think it's more about the solutions for me than necessarily the root cause. I think the root cause is very hard to, for, for me to understand, but you can certainly see trends as to what works in the workplace. And I think this report does a great job highlighting also practical tools to go about how to address that as well as acknowledging why. Um, but I think that there's a lot you can do on trends of what, what matters and what can impact your. Team and your culture more holistically, and and as much as we we talk about it, it does stem from the very top. It starts from the board, and then it's it's magnified at the at the CEO level, and and it ricochets down.
0: So, what are the, what are some of those practical things you think, just as a start, the CEO and board actively and openly talking about the importance of mental health um, some of the other things that Yeah, there, I think I think
1: that's the starting point. I th- my observation, I think that's a given. I think if you're not doing that, that's when people start to question the workplace. I think the question is how are you talking about it and what are you talking about it and then more importantly what are you doing? So it's all well and good to say, "Hey, we're doing a are you okay day." lunch. But do you turn up for five minutes? Do you turn up fifteen minutes late? Are you even involved? Are you on the panel moderating or are you you're kind of letting other other parties do it? so I think taking an active role in those conversations is is really important. And I think being exposed. And and by exposed I mean being vulnerable to not getting it right. And so leaning into your staff and knowing what exactly is it that they want and need to help you. A lot of people are like, well, we've got an EAP program. I'm like, yeah, well, let's have a look at some of those hit rates with those EAP programs. Very rarely does the organization is the turning point for someone seeking help. Um, the the hardest battle is how does a manager practically deal with someone in their team who's got a mental health issue? And if that manager is not well-trained, that That is a systemic issue within the organization of have you trained that manager about how to deal with this? And I think we now just have to embed that type of training within the organization. And it's not, you don't have to be the solution. You need to provide a safe place for that person to get to their best peak performance. You need to create a safe journey for that person to seek help. And ideally it's not help seeking, Ideally, it's before that. Ideally, it's about the day-to-day things of of that activity, reading, time out. You know, not not expecting people to reply to your email when you email at eleven p.m. Not expecting a reply, or well, if someone does reply at eleven thirty-one, you you call it out and say, "Yeah, they might be my hours, but they're not what I expect." And don't reply in those hours. So you kind of set little things matter, um, and and once that culture's embedded. It's hard to shift unless you're very intentional about it. So I think the intention has to be very clear and you have to be willing to get it wrong, but you have to be willing to correct it and, and actively correct it.
0: It's interesting. A lot of those points you raised are actually in the, the framework, which was published in the report, which included taking that systems level approach. So actually integrating these factors across culture, policies, business strategy, structures at all levels. So it's not That's just right putting on a day and expecting people to turn up, it's across the organisation and, and also perhaps including your business teams in the design and implementation of these types of activities. Again, rather than just saying, right, we're doing these three things and moving on.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I'll just, I'll just, let me just use Bittier as a, as a cultural example here. And it's more, we're not, we're not a big organisation, right? So I understand that this will be challenged by the big players, but we work in mental health. We have a workforce that I would say, and I know the stats, it's around 96% of staff identify with a mental health issue. I would absolutely categorize Batir as a high-performance culture. So we have nearly every single person identifies with a lived experience of mental health. You can still perform exceptionally well. Just because you have a mental health issue doesn't mean you can't be incredible. You might need a timeout here and there, but it doesn't mean you can't go. And if you can show the team the loyalty, if you can set up the, the, the framework for that individual to feel supported, to go down that journey and to bounce back, the loyalty you get back is much stronger. The insights you get from that individual is much better. And as a whole, commercially, you're actually better off too. So you're both individually better off the manager and the, and the um, the worker is better off and the organisation is better off so i just think in many ways that investment should not be seen as a i have to provide this it should be seen as that an investment an investment into your into your staff and your workforce
0: i essentially think it can be a workplace of choice that's right if that's yeah. the case and then looking at the extreme case the other way mm-hmm. if none of this is in place and there are uh poor systems and examples of harassment and so on and so forth, it's got to be a place where people won't want to work. That's right. So there's two ends to the spectrum. So by getting it right, you can attract people and retain people. Getting it wrong. Exactly. They're exactly. losing people and not attracting people, so it's a. That's
1: right, and you need the you need the the you need the ability that if it's not going right, how is that escalated as well? Like you need that very clearly articulated from the from the grassroots up as to as to how what is the pathways that that can be done in a fair and reasonable manner. too.
0: well, I urge everyone to read the report. I'll provide a link in the podcast notes. It is designed to be practical. It's designed to be useful for corporates and employees. And as I said, it does have that framework, which includes guiding principles to managing mental health issues, overall health issues um, in the workplace. So really proud that we could be uh, placed more part in that. And thank you to Batyr for um, doing all the hard work in putting that together. And also the company examples, which included Mervac, one of our sustainability leaders overall. I want to move on to Birdie. Yes. Tell us about it. Five years ago, roughly established, <laughs> now working with some of the best, best and biggest corporates in Australia. Yeah, good. Let me, I'll jump in.
1: So it's, um. look, fundamentally we're a technology, we're a technology company and we focus in what we call aerial intelligence. And, and what that means is we specialize in drone technology, but if it's any data that we can visualize, process, analyze, um, we're interested in it. And so um, that is an absolute growing space. Many organisations probably on this podcast probably know of like a Nearmap model. So the difference between say Nearmap and Birdie, Nearmap does manned aircraft capture. Uh, we provide organisations the ability to leverage off a pilot network. Think of it a bit like an Uber for the skies, or um, you can also train your own staff and develop your own in-house pilot team and we'll take that data and process that data. So you own the data, it's your insights and we support you on that journey. So we do a range of things, but that's in a nutshell, we're a data visualization company that specializes in aerial intelligence with
0: it. And some of the companies that- Yeah, so I'm I'm
1: going to start with, because you mentioned it earlier, so I'll just lead with it as well. Mervac, we do a lot with Mervac on construction, developments, progress reports. Uh, Great company to be working with really, you know, construction's difficult to embed new technologies. I think they've done a great job um, in that journey. We do a lot with Borrel on volumetrics and reporting. We've replaced their manned aircraft capture with with um, drones. So it's a more sustainable path as well, but they're getting their insights faster, more accurate and entertainingly cheaper. So a, a dream combination for any business out there. Um, and then we're starting to do a bit more with some of the mine sites. I can't on the NDAs, go into all of them, but um, you know we're doing stuff up in uh, some of the Glencore parts of the world and and some of the other major organizations, as well as we're just starting to work with some listed companies overseas on it. We have traditionally purely focused on enterprise organizations, but in the past three months now, it's about to be four months. We um launched what we would call our global capability arm. So any drone operator globally can now use our platform. And so it's still a journey that we're going through. But to give you an example, we're now we've now got operations in over 58 countries. So, you know, the the opportunity for us is is huge. We're really excited by it. I think we've been very smart about our approaches, our businesses, get the business model right, get the knowledge, get the speed up to date, and then and then look to take it overseas. And that's where we're, that's we're kind of in that um, deep in those discussions as to, to where's next.
0: So I might have started, I think, with hardware approach, drone surveillance or whatever. Now it's more an information yeah. intelligence system that's much more scalable. And I would have thought the value add there is is significantly higher than Absolutely. Like, don't get me wrong. We, we
1: started out, um, my brother and I were using drones to film ourselves, play touch football. And this is back before drones started. And we're like, this is the best view ever. Like if you're playing sport, spatial awareness is one of the hardest things. Which line are you running? So we're like, this is incredible. And then because of our experience in the renewable space, we're like, right, what other what other sensors can you put on these drones? And then we're like, well, we knew a bit about the solar installation market. You're like, how do you do an audit on a solar rooftop? Because you can't get on the roof. It's too high risk. It's too costly. It's too time consuming. Like you could just fly a drone over, find cracks with a photo or use thermal and um, see the efficiency of it. And so that's how it started out. It started out in sport and real estate. And now over the years, has pivoted much more. And it was meant to be a marketplace model. It's much more now about... Uh, the data and the insights that we can support organisations to, to um, get.
0: And what are the parallels with starting up, Bertie and Batir, besides both being um, names with a B, small B? B. F-
1: B and five letters. as being no capitals, five Look, letters. I, you know, I think at the crux of all of this, um, I think I fell into entrepreneurship. I, I I still there's a part of me that feels like I'm a big business guy. Like I'd love to go back to that corporate structure and, and maybe that will happen one day. Uh, but I think the similarities are there's a determination and resilience that's required for entrepreneurship. Um, and that can be mirrored in any space. And I think there's also an element of, you need to have a little bit of a vision, but not be too far ahead. And I think in both instances for Batir and Birdie, I think it, a lot of things you can't do in an organization is timing and market. And I think we were very fortunate with Batir that we were ahead of that lived experience and embedding that lived experience and peer model, um, before the sector did. So we got a lot of experience there. And I think in Birdie, you know, drones, they're much more acceptable now, but people are now trying to write, right. How does it go from an innovation arm into an operational and scale arm? And we're interested in how do we help businesses scale and embed it within their operations. That's what we want to help support do. So, and I think businesses are now turning towards that uh, much more as well. And Australia leads the way a little bit, but I think there's a big opportunity for us as well elsewhere.
0: And what's been the most challenging aspect with Birdie? Most
1: challenging aspect. Oh, it's hard not to say capital raising. It's it's. It's a tough, it's a tough job. It's on top of everything else whilst you're running the business. Uh, it's vague as to what the intentions are of investors and, and how to go about it. But we've been so fortunate with the investors that we've got. We've got a great individual base. We've got some good VCs on board. Martesian, um, the Clean Energy Fund have come on as well. Um, you know, there's a great investor out of Singapore, Kevin, who's been amazing as well. So we've got some really good structures and organisations now getting in behind it. So, uh, but I can't say I look forward to capital raising, but I understand <laughs> it's somewhat part of my job. I'd, I, I think there's an element of like, do one more round and and then just let the business sing for itself. We're pretty we're pretty close to getting break even, which is nice. So so hopefully we can have a bit more of a control of our own destiny. But there's also an element that we're a growth company. Like people don't want to be too conservative. You've got to hunt, you've got to go hungry in a growth area. And, and that's what we want to try and present. And I think that's what our investors want us to do as well. So we kind of got to respect that too, that this is, I'd, I'd say to some degree, risk capital, um, but it's uh, hopefully high return for them as well. And what's the vision from here? Where do you think Bertie, can get to? Where, I thought you sent me. I'll be retired on a... <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, look, I'm, I'm slightly realistic that I think we've built incredible technology and a visualisation platform I think where that sits long-term will be a bigger question of there's a lot of movement in AI, which we're starting to to dabble in in the background and and what role does that play um, to support organisations? And so I think there's an element of do we fit part of a bigger puzzle, so geospatial, so satellites and and what have you, and and are we a part of another bigger organisation and, and we, we add value to an organisation that already has the clientele or the base or do we continue our own journey and, and ride that? path. It, I think that is undefined for me. I think regardless, I think there's a real opportunity in this area to continue to grow and, and lead the space and, and really take a driving foot. I think we've been pretty quiet. Um, not many people would know about us. And I think now's the time for us to kind of look at changing that that dialogue and, and getting out there a bit more, just given our experience and, and traction.
0: And what would be your advice to others starting up a technology-driven company like Birdie, looking back? Uh Look, you can you
1: can do as much research as you want. The best research you get is when you're in market. So you got to get in there, get the feedback, be open to pivoting, be open to you know the stronger you can develop relationships with your clients and customers, the better um so work really closely with them. I, I think that's fundamental. I also think it's really important that you have the right culture and the right team. and so you've constantly got to be analyzing, have we got the right people in the right roles at the right time for the organization? and I won't I won't you know, warts and all, like, you know, we've grown in staff and we've cut that staff back drastically in the past, you know, six, nine months, so we can kind of see a longer runway rather than having to go to market immediately. So, you know, that doesn't mean it's a sweet run all the time. It is absolutely challenging doing this, but it's incredibly rewarding, but I wouldn't chase the end goal. You got to, you got to enjoy the journey. And I think I've found that again um, in the past six months and that's been really enjoyable.
0: Well, this has also been very enjoyable. That's the Likewise, end of, the, likewise. <laughs> thank you so much. We've covered <laughs> a lot of ground. hours later. <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> so it's not the shortest podcast we've done, but it's just so fantastic to catch up with you in a f- more formal type arrangement, I guess. It's been a colloquial uh, informal podcast, but still sitting down and going through all of that. It's just given me a, an, an added appreciation of, of what you've achieved, what you've done, and um, to be there for part of the way. And I think yeah, this is where I'll pleasure. cut you
1: off, but you have been there for, for almost since its inception. And I think this journey has been a shared journey for so many, but I think we've also shared a special bond along that. And and I thank you for, for getting in and getting behind it. I think people like you with your skills and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will have that same moment that you had. They'll sit and hear someone speak at an event that they attend and they'll go, could I help that person? And I just strongly encourage you, whatever it is, whatever you're passionate about, if you find someone, put your hand up and go and hunt that out because it does change the game for those for those individuals and for those organizations and the people that they serve.
0: And this podcast is all about making a difference. And I think the audience that we've got will be able to put that into play and uh, help a lot of people and make their companies and what they do actually a lot better and for And if you it. can't
1: find any, just make a donation to Petit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very nice. you got to put the plug in, right? <laughs> Thanks so
1: much, Steve. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.
1: The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.